speak. He gave me the choices of some ver- some chapters, and for some reason, uh, I chose 21 and 22, not knowing that these are probably some of the <laughs> sketchiest chapters of, of the book of Samuel uh, on that, because what we have in, in Samuel 21 and 22 is is uh, David has finally realized that there's no going back. Uh, Saul and I are just not going to be able to make it together. Uh, Saul has attempted several times. Jonathan has kind of opened David's eyes and says, you're right, there's no going back. Uh, and so we find David fleeing uh, from, from Saul, from the ins and outs of the government, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And actually he's left his position where he led a, a, a brigade of 1,000 uh, soldiers and very successfully. And now he's running for his life, and he goes to uh, a town and, uh, of Nob, that it's a, it's a sanctuary town, actually, and where you have priests dedicated to providing a sanctuary for people uh, who need that, who need time with God or need sacrifices, whatever it may be. And we find him stepping up to the plate and lying to the leader of that community. And then he runs off uh, after he gets uh, food and, and a sword. And he says, okay, since I can't really live with uh, Saul, why don't I just live with the Philistines? Which you're thinking, well, that's not the best decision I've heard in a while. Uh, and, and so he goes and attempts to be a mercenary with the, Philippi- with the Philippines, with the Philistines. <laughs> There has been, well, we won't go down that road. Uh, and so he, the Philistines, and thinking, well, he's, he's got to be thinking, uh, either they won't recognize me, or, you know, uh, or I'm such a good warrior, they're going to ignore my past and take me on. And of course they don't. They recognize them, and they're thinking crazy. And one of the best verses, I think, in Scripture is right there. And then he runs, and then he runs back uh, to the cave of Adullam where he's joined by 400 men and their wives and kids and everything and his family, and his family who's probably holding him responsible for their, whole, for their need to flee, as well as all the malcontents that could possibly come together in one place. And then at the end of these chapters, we find one of the most, most horrific injustices when this whole, this, the, the sanctuary community is completely wiped out. So it's kind of a sketchy two, two chapters. And what happened is, is when we talk about the tug of war between, uh, the tug of war that we see happening with the life of David, the tug of war that we're dealing with here and dealing with this morning is the tug of war between fear, being afraid, and courage and being brave. And we're going to see that in the lives of Saul and in David. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Father, I do indeed pray that your word would work in our hearts, that in a small way we would walk out of this time changed, that your spirit would use your word, your sword in our lives. In your name, amen. So the situation we have here, as you all know, and we've been keeping up, is that Saul is slipping more and more into paranoia, into being driven by fear, being super jealous of David, 
uh, we're going to see his decision-making is, is, is it's going downhill quickly. In fact, in, in chapter 18, uh, one of the things, we see this very vividly. When Saul becomes jealous of David is the title of this, of this chapter. In verse 12 it says, Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. David, then in verse 14, David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. And then in verse 28, when Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michal loved him, see, Saul became more even afraid of him. Saul became even more afraid of him. And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. And we see Saul slipping into this this thing of fear. And I would be curious, and I didn't have time, but I'd be curious to see how fear affects our thinking. Does it drive us more and more into paranoia? Does it drive us more to, to read things falsely? And I think what God is dealing with us here and what the passage has for us is how do we wrestle with fear? And the interesting thing as we get into uh, chapter 21 is that David is now fleeing from Saul. And he is, and we find when he gets to the uh, Philistines, something that's said of David that we don't find elsewhere. He was afraid. And so, in a sense, we're dealing with how two men deal with this emotion of being afraid. And David is going to have to deal with it himself as well as Saul is dealing. And we see that Saul is not dealing with it very well at all. And this tug of war that we find is the tug of war of fear versus bravery during courageous. Uh, Chris and Messon, be courageous. That is the number one command throughout scripture head and shoulders just like Saul head and shoulders above all other commands be courageous we see it to Joshua see the others it's either be courageous or fear not and it says God says fear cripples our testimony fear cripples to see God's hand in our lives and I think we see some of this in, in these passages that we come across in Saul and and so we see on verse, uh, starting with chapter uh, 21. So Daniel went to the town of Nob to see Ahimelech, the priest. And as we will find out in the next chapter, Ahimelech was no stranger to David. And David was no stranger to the community at Nob. That was a sanctuary. That was a place that people would come to worship, that people would come to focus on God. Uh, this was a place of peace. And we have a community of what probably around 350, maybe 400 people, uh, husbands, wives, kids, cattle, uh, whatever, a small town. But it was, a, it was a sanctuary town that was focused on peace. It was focused on right relationship with God. And this is where David fled to. And he only he didn't flee that. He didn't have to run that far. It was only two or three miles of about where Saul's headquarters was. And so he, he comes here, and the first thing he does is he lies. This is great. One of the things that we keep asking ourselves when we read about the life of David, 
is how does he portray a heart after God? Because that's how he's described by, by several. David was a man whose heart was after God. And so we look, at the, we look at the testimony of David, we look at the life of David, and we determine, okay, David, how are you modeling a heart after God? And, and, he's, and one of the things he's modeling is that a, to have a heart after God doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Uh, it means you're fallible. It means a person with a heart after God is not going to make the, the best or the smartest decision time after time. In fact, what David does is kind of show us that, you know, humanity gets real messy in a hurry. And yet, we can still have a heart after God. And so we find that in David. And so uh, we find Ahimelech trembled when he saw him. Why are you alone? And why is no one with you? Because Ahimelech at this time, he had seen David with his uh, soldiers. He had seen David with uh, uh, other people. But this is the problem. It seems like this was the first time that Dave, he's seen David by himself. Something's off. Something's wrong. And we have a little bit of fear coming through Ahimelech. And he says, And so David's response was, The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm, why I'm here. I have told my men where to meet me later. Now, what is there to eat? That sounds like a guy. Uh, and he's going to be asking for something that he can whack people with. So he's definitely a guy, and probably a, in his 20s. Um, no judgment here. Uh, but that. But what calls our attention is that he felt it necessary to lie. And the question is, why? Why couldn't he just be right up front with Ahimelech? Because Ahimelech knew what was going on. He's only two or three miles from Gibeah, uh, and where all this action is taking place, he knows that David is, you know, falling out of sorts with with Saul. Uh, in fact, it's some say that Ahimelech was the brother of Saul's priest, and so there there was this. He knew it was the tension, and so there was probably you know there's something here that uh, Ahimelech was a little bit uh, questioning. So David's response is a lie. He felt he had to lie. And for one reason or another, that should maybe encourage some of us. It encourages me that, you know, there are times when I haven't been exactly faithful to the truth. And that I'm in good company with David. And, it's, and I think part of this is that we're not to beat ourselves up if we're not perfect. We're not to beat ourselves up if sometimes we are afraid. Sometimes that maybe fear creeps into our life. And that David, in a sense, will be learning from this. But we have a real person in front of us. We have a person that, that's as messy as we can be. And I think that's going to be an encouragement to us. And so Ahimelech says, now what is there to eat? And he says, give me five loaves of bread or anything, anything else that you have. Uh, well, the priest says, well, we don't have any regular bread, the priest said, but there is some holy bread, which you can have if your young men have not slept with women recently. And this was a practice for the armies that uh, they would be celibate uh, before battle, before going into battle. And David replied, don't worry, I have never allowed my men to be with women that they can be on a campaign. And since they stay clean, even on the ordinary, how much more on this one? 
Now, here's where David is a poor liar. Okay, he had time to instruct his men to be celibate and be celibate for a couple of days before they go out for battle. But he didn't have time to get food. And so, uh, you know, if there, were, there, if there had been a mother here, <laughs> they would have seen right through. Excuse me, wait a minute, David, let's, let's back up a bit. But Ahimelech seems to ignore that uh, and goes on. says, um, since there was no other food available, the priest gave him the holy bread, the bread of the presence that was placed before the Lord in the tabernacle. And it had just been replaced the day before with fresh bread. Well, the practice was in a sanctuary like this or a place of worship is that they would lay out on the Sabbath fresh bread before an altar. And this was to remind the people of God's provision. And all through the week when people would come into the sanctuary to pray and stuff like that, it was one of the reminders of God's provision for them that we so desperately need to hear time and uh, time and again. But when it was done at the end of the seven days when they were going to replace it with fresh bread, the old bread was given to the priests. And it was only to go to the priests. It was considered holy bread. Uh, it was pretty tough by that time, six days, uh, seven days old. Uh, but it was for the priests. And Ahimelech chose to bend the rules. And he gave the bread to, to David. And this says something about Ahimelech because in Matthew 12, 1 through 5, this is the incident that Jesus has used with the Pharisees who were so blinded to be keeping the law, they, saw, they, they didn't see the spirit of the law. And so Ahimelech, sent, in a sense, this is Ben's line, says, this is for you, David. And he makes the judgment that this goes to David. That it was better to care for David than to obey the, the letter, in a sense, of the tradition or of the law. And so he gives him the bread. And David says, um, so he says, do you have a spear or sword? Uh, continuing on in the, in the book. And he says, um, the king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Again, another example of, you know, David is just a lousy liar. Uh, on that. Didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Interesting. And Ahimelech says, "I only have the sword of Goliath. I only have the sword of Goliath, the Philistine." Now the sword was, and, and this is interesting. This only had the sword. Of, you know, this is maybe the only weapon in the town. This is a sanctuary town. This is a town that's focused on peace. Stands uh, This may be the only weapon that they have in town, and it was more of a, you know, it was kind of like a. Uh, memorial or something like that. I'm sure the Sabbath day schools would, you know, bring their kids and look at it. it says here's, a, you know, the, the sword of Goliath that David used to cut off his head, um, and and it was there. And so, but that was there. And David says, "Give me it. That's great. I I couldn't think of a better sword to have than this one." And the and the curious thing is that you want to ask David says, David, just how well did this sword serve Goliath? Don't you remember that you did not need a sword to have victory over Goliath? And so we see now that David is he's wrestling with something. He's, he's, he's moving in a direction that he hasn't before. 
And that's relying on weapons and not God's provision and God's protection. And this is a lesson that's going on for him. So he takes the sword, and I, I love it taking the sword, and especially the sword of Goliath, and especially he, he's now going to the capital of the Philistines, Gath. And Gath happens to be the hometown of Goliath, who obviously is no longer there. It's also the hometown of Goliath's brothers. And it's also that David, ever since he, when he was given in charge of the thousand men, he just wreaked havoc on the Philistines. Everything he tried was successful against the Philistines. There was no other man who was responsible for grief, for crying, for desperation in the land of the Philistines than David. So what's David's choice? Well, I'm going to go to the Philistines and work, you know, hide out there from Saul. You're thinking, this is the smart, you know, this guy's wrote all these psalms. It's not looking good. And so he goes there and on his way, and, he, and that's his plan. His plan is to become a mercenary for the Phil, uh, Philistines. Philistines, you know, whatever it is. Um, <laughs> those, those guys to the east. And his mercy, which was very typical back in those days. Being a mercenary, in fact, uh, a little later, David's mighty men, mighty warriors, many of them were from outside of Israel. And it was very typical for, for uh, somebody, a warrior like David, to, in a sense, sell himself, his, his sword, his weapons, to uh, the highest bidder at this time, or somebody like uh, Gath and the Philistines. So he arrives there, and that's his plan. He's, he's hoping that, well, I'm sure they've forgotten what I looked like back when you know, I killed Goliath. Uh, or they're so desperate for warriors, they, they'll just make it, you know, like bygones be bygones. Uh, and that's the only thing I can figure out why he's going there. So that's his plan. And so, uh, so David escaped from Saul and went to King Achish of Gath. But the officers of Achish were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David, the king of the land? They asked, isn't he the one that people honor with dances and singing? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. I mean, not only did the Philistines recognize David, they knew the top record that was going on in the, in the nation of, in, in Israel. They knew the, the refrain. Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands, which drove Saul just crazy with jealousy. So his plan of kind of sneaking in and escaping Saul in this way just doesn't seem to be working. David heard these comments and was very afraid of what King Achish of Gath might do to him. This is one of the few times, I think maybe the only time, that we see fear in David. And it's a very significant time. We don't see fear in David when Absalom, his son, seeks to uh, usurp him. Uh, we don't see fear with Goliath. We don't see fear with, uh, with Saul. We see frustration. We see him as, you know, incomprehension. But we don't see fear. And here we see fear. And so what was his response to fear? The response of Saul to fear was seeking to murder David. The response of David to fear was taking an action that, Frankly, it's not the most 
uplifting action or, uh, that we could have, but his action that he took says, um, David heard these comments, so he pretended to be insane, scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. I got a feeling this is not the high point of David's life. But it is, it is a way to get out of this. I'm going to say, what else could he have done? I mean, could he just wished himself invisible and kind of backed out? Probably not. And so David takes this on and, and, he, and he acts crazy to get out of this situation. And you don't see Lord's, you know, you don't see any dialogue between him and God saying, you know, David, that was really stupid. I would, you know, I would have sent a chariot out of the clouds or anything like that. He says, it is what it is. It's David's way. And then comes one of my favorite lines in Scripture, which probably says more about me than anything. Uh, Finally, King Achish said to his men, Must you bring me a madman? We already have enough of them around here. Why should I let somebody this be my guest? What he's saying is, why are you bringing me somebody crazy? I've got enough crazy people around me. And somehow, in some way, David escapes. Why should I let someone? So David, in a sense, duped the king uh, of the Philistines at Gath, and he was able to escape. But what did he escape to? So David left Gath, starting in, in 22. So David left Gath and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just disconnected or discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. This is like the family vacation from the pit. Can you, let's, let's think about who's showing up. He's gone to a cave. You know, it's not exactly, you know, the, the Ritz or anything like that in cave. And who starts showing up? Well, his family. His family shows up very likely because they had to flee from their homes because of their relationship with David. Who knows what Saul was going to, was threatening the family of David. Very typical during those times that the, fam, the whole family is wiped out. So they've got to be grumbling. They've got to be mad. They've got to, you know, they didn't have a great relationship to start with that we see when, when David faces Goliath. So we have a family that's, you know, this is not, you know, good night, John, good night. You know, this, this is a family that's at odds with one another. And then they got people showing up that are trying to evade debtors, uh, you know, debt collectors. They got people who just don't know where they belong. And they got people that are discontented. The better word for that, they got people that are just bitter in spirit. What a great crowd to be around and locked up into a cave with. But the curious thing and the thing is that it is with these people in the caves of Adullam, because there's multiple caves there, that we find the qualities of a king coming to light. I believe that this time, and there may be several months that he was in the caves of Adullam, dealing with the fringes of society, dealing with people who are undoubtedly complaining, who are undoubtedly 
upset, who did nothing but whine. And it was these people that David, from his leadership, from his example, raised up the most effective army of the world at that time. These men and their families were the core of an army that God used to increase the promised land more than anyone else. Here we see, we're starting to see the leadership, the kingship of David. Even though it's going to be several years, many years, before he's actually king. But God is using a situation to form him into the man that has a heart after him. One of the things, when I said, he says, where do we see the heart for God and David? I think we see it very clearly in this, when he is tied in with this group of people. That he, he's not waiting for the best warriors. He's not waiting for the best people they can get along with, etc., etc. He's using what God has given him. And these people are definitely on the fringe. These people are not the ones you would start an army with. And yet David does. Let me back up a little bit and talk a little bit about the sanctuary. The sanctuary because, unfortunately, it gets the brunt of an unjust action by a jealous king. But a sanctuary... One person says it's a protected place from the grossness of the world and the messiness of family. (laughs) I really like that last part. (laughs) Just kidding. No, not really. Um, But sanctuary is a place that we draw away from the world. We draw away from the messiness of life for a time. Could be five minutes, could be two days, whatever it may be. But it, in, in that time, it was drawing away from a world where we can focus on God. That we can remind ourselves of the, of the faithfulness of God as we've been singing. That we can remind ourselves of the work on the cross. That we can remind ourselves that one day we will be with Him. Sanctuaries are critical if we are to be courageous. Sanctuaries are critical if we are to fight what it means to be afraid, to, to walk in fear. Sanctuaries, I think, are one of the things, especially in our American culture, are maybe the hardest discipline that we have to do. And the question is that I have for myself and for you all, where is my sanctuary? Where are my sanctuaries? Where are places that I can take a breath, focus on the Word, Focus on prayer. Whatever it may be that I can draw away from the circumstances of my life for a minute and reorientate myself with the truth of God's justice, the truth of God's love. And I'll be the first one to confess that I take that for granted, that I am not one to purposely seek out a sanctuary where I can hear God's voice at the very least be quiet before the Lord. And I think the message, you know, one of the things is, is a sanctuary, and, and that makes the, the coming tragedy so, so tragic, is that there are so few places that we can find sanction. This is one. 
we are all in a, in a, and I think one of the purposes of the leadership of any church is to make sure there's sanctuary for its people, where they can be honest before God, where they can hear the truths of God. One of the, probably the, the sanctuary that I think of most often and probably the most used is a hospital cha- a chapel. I mean, how many times have we seen or some people that are, they've got to find sanctuary in order to make it through the tragic the tragedy they may be facing? Sanctuary, and it's not just it has to be a place. Jacob found it; he found sanctuary laying on a stone pillow. Moses found sanctuary in the in the in the presence of a burning bush. I believe Paul found sanctuary even tied up to two, two guards. Sanctuary doesn't have to be a beautiful building with nice lights or anything like that. Sanctuary can be a car in a parking lot underneath a tree. It could be a walk through Hudson Gardens. Um, sanctuary, there's no listing of, okay, these can be sanctuaries, these can't. But if we don't have a place that we can reflect on the goodness of God, the power of God, our desperate need of Him, I don't see us being courageous as we can be. And if there's one thing we want to be is, we want to be a courageous church. We don't want to be a church that's shackled by fear. And in order for that to happen, I think we need to practice sanctuary. We need to find places that we're alone for God. Look at, let me just read a, a psalm or two that comes from this, these experiences so far of David. Psalm 59, those that were trying to kill him. He cries out, Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who have come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals, from these murderers. And he says, O Lord, God of heaven's armies, we sing, the God of Israel, wake up and punish those hostile nations. Show no mercy to the wicked traitors. That's pretty hard. That's, that's from the heart. Not trying to sugarcoat anything. Not trying to say, you know, look how good I am. I would never say anything bad against anybody. And we have incredible. And, and he says in verse 8, for example, But Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at the hostile nations. That's a real... Strong belief. And then just back a few is in, in uh, 56. And this is where the, I says, from the choir, you know, for the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time the Philistines seized him in Gath to be sung to the tune, Dove on, on Distant Oak. So there was country western back in then. Um, and three says, but when I am afraid... I will put my trust in you. That's the words of sanctuary. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. This is not easy. We understand that. David understood that. But that's what he had to say. That's how he dealt with his fear. When I'm afraid, I will put my trust in you. And I think one of the key things of sanctuary is to help us with this trusting God and keeping us in that 
direction for them. Then we go on. David moves. Uh, he takes his folks to Moab, which is interesting because he has family there. Because uh, Ruth was a, was a Moabite, and uh, he's in the lineage of there. And then one day, the prophet uh, Gad told David, "Leave." The, okay, then he takes off. The news of his arrival in Judah soon reached Saul. At the time, the king was sitting beneath the tamarisk tree on a hill in Gibeah, holding a spear and surrounded by his officers. This is how they did business. Uh, this is how they did government. And he says, Listen here, you men of Benjamin, Saul shouted to his officers that he heard the news. Has that son of Jesse promised every one of you fields and vineyards? Has he promised to make you all generals and captains in his army? Is that why you have conspired against me? Here his fear and his jealousy is now taking a nosedive in his decisions and his understanding and his perception. He says, why have you conspired against me? For not one of you told me when my own son made a solemn pact with the son of Jesse. You're not even sorry for me. Sounds like a great king. Think of it, my own son encouraging him to kill me as he is trying to do to this very day. Saul is losing it. I mean, he probably has. This is what I think fear does to, can eventually do to us if we live in fear over a long period of time is that our perception of reality starts taking a hit, and a major hit. Because this is not reality. Then Doeg, the Edomite, who was standing there with Saul's men, spoke up. When I was at Nob, I saw the son of Jesse talking to the priest, Ahimelech, son of Ahitub, uh, Himelech consulted the Lord for him. Then he gave him food and the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. When Saul, King Saul immediately sent for Ahimelech and all his family, who served as his priest, and so he brought Himelech to him. And Himelech says, What is it, my king? Why have you and the son of Jesse conspired against me? Justice is taking a hit here as well. And Saul demanded, Why did you give him food and a sword? Why have you consulted God for him? Why have you encouraged him to kill me as he is trying to do in this very day? Which is at odds because there will be two times in the near future where David had every opportunity to kill him and he did not. And one of the realities that David lived by was that Saul was still the anointed one by God. And he lived in truth where Saul is now living in falsity, now living in, uh, in untruths. And then Doeg says, when I, okay, King Saul immediately sent for, okay, one down. <clears throat> but Surah, Amalek replied, is anyone above among all your servants as faithful as David, your son-in-law? Why, he is the captain of your bodyguard and a highly honored member of your household. This was certainly not the first time I had consulted God for him. May the king not accuse me and my family in this manner, for I knew nothing at all of my plot against you. So what was Saul's response? You will surely die. And Saul asked his officers to slaughter Ahimelech and the other 80, the 84 priests that came with him. And we see a bright spot of courage here because they refused to do that. One thing that Saul had got and mixed up is the role of the priest is not to support the king. The role of the priest 
is to minister to people who are hurting. The role of the priest is to serve the poor, etc. And Saul was seeking, he says, no, the role of the priest is to support me, the king. And for their, for their courage, they says, no, we're not going to go with that. We're not, we're not going to raise our hand against the priest. Now, what they did not do is they did not prevent the og to do that very thing. And it says, then the king said to Diog, Diog you do it. So Diog, the Edomite, turned on them and killed them that day, 85 priests in all, still wearing their priestly garments. Then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, and killed the priests' families, men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, donkeys, sheep, and goats. This was a sad day for Israel, without a doubt. And I come to this, how do you explain this? How do you, why didn't God step in? This community that they sought peace, they sought direct men and women to a right relationship with God, to help them in, in, in their sacrifices and having a heart for God. The only way I can answer this is turning back or is referring to Revelations, John's Revelation. And no matter how you approach Revelations, one of the main themes of it is the wicked will be judged. There will be a compensense or recompense for those who have done evil. And that I trust that at one day, Edomite, this Edomite will be judged for what he did. The story of David is full of tragedies. It's full of things that we really don't understand all that well. But here's where we go back to sanctuary. I don't believe we can handle tragedies, the injustices that exist in this world, the injustices that exist in this culture, the injustices that we see time and again through a a fallible justice system without relying upon the message of revelation that God will act against this kind of evil and that we can trust in Him. And I think that's one of the, one of the roles of sanctuary is to remember that. And so at the end we say, only Abathar, one of the sons of Ahimelech, escaped and fled to David. And when he told David that Saul had killed the priest of the Lord, David explained, I knew it when I saw Doeg the Inuit there that day. I know he was sure to tell Saul, now I have caused the death of all your father's family. Stay here with me and don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life and for the same person who wants to kill us both. David has taken responsibility for the murder, for the, for the uh, genocide of Nob, though I don't think he was at fault. A heart after God. A heart after God takes responsibility for actions. And this was David's heart. When we take responsibility for our actions, God is able to work in us. When we take responsibility for our actions, God changes our heart. He works on our heart. And that's the message of David in this tug of war that 
What does it mean to be a, a person with a heart after God? David is showing us. Yes, at times he messes up. Yes, at times it's really messy. At times we have no understanding. But God continually showed David, continually grew him to be a man after his heart. For us, the message is the best I can, you know. Do we have sanctuaries? Are we people of the sanctuary? Are we people of the word? Am I a person that has sanctuary where I can go and be reminded of the greatness of God, of his love, of his in charge of the world? It's not a very good way to say that. Let's pray.